Hello, and welcome to the Workplace Justice Podcast. This podcast helps to inform and empower you about your rights within the workplace. We cover topics and examples of various matters in employment law, including sexual harassment, pregnancy discrimination, racial discrimination, how the courts define a hostile work environment, whistleblowing, and everything in between. Workplace Justice is brought to you by the New York City employment and civil rights law firm, Nassar Law Group. Here are your hosts, Mahir Nassar, Casey Wolnowski, and Jeffrey Rosenberg. Thank you for listening to the Workplace Justice Podcast. I am your host, Maher Nassar, and we'll be talking about power and its dynamics within the workplace. Today's guest has reframed the way we should look at workplaces from the perspective of power. I'm joined today with Jeff Coulard, who is the co-CEO and director of learning and development at the Ally Co., a team of entrepreneurs, consultants, coaches, facilitators, and instructors helping organizations to cultivate awareness, willingness, and skills required to lead truly transformational change. Having spent most of his earlier professional years leading teams and helping to build globally recognized addiction treatment programs, Jeff has developed a transformational skill set and approach to change that is grounded in the human experience and a deep understanding of power and motivation. From TEDx stage to the boardroom, you'll find him engaging people in conversation about life and leadership's most important topics. Thank you so much, Jeff, for joining us today. Great to be here. Thank you. And so I wanted to ask you, we constantly are hearing within the news that employees are burned out. What do you think is driving the so-called burnout of employees? I think I probably just posted something today about this very topic. You know, it was three years ago, I think the World Health Organization classified it as a occupational phenomenon, not necessarily a disease in the same way we might think of normal diseases, but the fact that the World Health Organization thinks it's a big enough problem to flag. And since then, we've, you know, the global pandemic has hit since 2019 and burnout itself has grown pretty exponentially. The, the, the most recent data is actually quite frightening, like 70 to 80% of us are experiencing burnout in our current roles in the, inside of the last year. And so burnout in and of itself is a collection of symptoms. Right. So it's not any one thing. And I think the same thing goes for what drives burnout. It's not any one factor or any one thing. But when I do trace things like burnout, so burnout for me would be an indicator of wellness or workplaces that are healthy or unhealthy. You know, if you've got a bunch of burnt out work workers, there's something underneath of that that's driving that. And I tend to trace that. I pull that thread and get us all the way back, usually to power, a conversation about how power shows up in the workplace. Who has power? How did they get it? How are they using it? What's the impact of the use of that power on the people that they're there to lead or support in, in different ways of the way that they're working? And, you know, is it conducive to wellness or is it driving, you know, driving burnout? So, you know, for me, most conversations about the workplace end up at a place of like, let's talk about power. Like, what does that actually mean or look like? And that's a great segue. Let's talk about power. So how would you define power? Yeah, so I've taken the definition from the Right Use of Power Institute, which I'll share the links with you and you can share them with your followers because it's the framework, the model that resonated the most with me. And when I started to dig into these types of issues, it's like, what is actually power? Because if you ask that question, or when I ask that question of a group, I'll get as many different answers as there are people that I'm asking the question to, because we all have our own lived experience with power. But the most basic or simplest definition that I've come to is the ability to affect or prevent change. Right. And so we'll see power as, you know, will affect change in the world or, you know, you probably see this a lot and I see this a lot. We'll use power to protect the status quo or we'll use it to prevent changes from happening or occurring. And so within a workplace environment, how does that power 
in essence, that that process of trying to either perpetuate change or to retain the status quo kind of exists in the framework that general companies have? Like, how do you feel what the interplay is between that? Yeah, so one thing we have to do is dig beneath, uh, like take power and actually unpack it into make get more a more nuanced perspective on what power actually is because as one word it's kind of like wellness you say wellness or burnout even it's like well what does that actually mean where you're just going to have a different perspective and so one thing that's helpful about the right use of power framework is this kind of five types of power model and so i can maybe I'll, maybe i'll walk us through the five types of power really quickly and then it should become clear it's like oh that's what that's happening in the workplace right so the first type of power you and i both have lots of this is personal power right the ability to affect change based in is who we are as people Right, all of us have a certain amount of personal power. I have access to my personal power at different times in different ways. So I don't all. I'm not always at my most powerful, and I'm sure you're the same. You know, Friday night comes along. It's been a long, hard week. It's like I'm not going for a run. Right, I'm not going to actually affect change on like by t- being motivated to go do something. I'm going to recuperate and, and rest. But that personal power is is portable. It goes with us from one context to another. And so listeners are going to experience both of our personal powers here in this conversation: our communication skills, our charisma. We might say personality as like those characteristics as part of people's personal power. There's a few different ways we could probably talk just about personal power or any of these types of power for the rest of the show. But the next type of power is this idea of role power. Right. And so when you get into a role or a position and that position itself has power. So in this instance, you're the host, I'm the speaker and we have listeners. So we actually have these different roles that we're playing. And your role as podcast host is to ask hopefully insightful questions, to elicit good responses, to make it engaging and meaningful. My job is to show up as the, as the participant and, you know, share my truth. Right. And so each of us has a role and it exists only in this context. And so after we hit the, you know, leave studio button, we're going to both go out and do and embrace other roles in life. I'm a father and I'm a consultant and I'm a co-CEO and you're a lawyer and CEO, right? So that kind of roles are contextual and with them come expectations, assumptions, obligations, responsibilities, all of that. And you can see that, look at an organizational chart in a workplace and you'll see role power laid out on paper. The next type of power that both personal power and role power are embedded within is this idea of status power. And it's a pretty rich conversation about status in the world these days and privilege and things like all the isms. You know, pick an ism. What we're really talking about is the power associated with a certain status or a certain membership in a group. And so as a white, cisgendered, heterosexual male, you know, I check off a lot of the status power buckets and that power is within me, but it's not my personal power. It's been granted to me by society. Society says that you have more power in most of the spaces that you're going to occupy based on these memberships. And so those are those three types of power, probably the ones that play out the most in the workplace. And the fourth type of power is collective power. And we'll see that in the workplace as well. You know, unionization is a push to push back against maybe oppressive uses of power or misuses of power by the collective. You know, we'll join forces and say we're more powerful together than we are as individuals. And then the last type of power is this idea of systemic power or structural power. And that's where everything else is wrapped around. It's the, the paradigms, the mindsets, the language, all of the things that make certain uses of power possible inside of the system and other uses frowned upon or actively discouraged by the systems. So that's a pretty quick overview of the five types. But I think when you look into an organization or when I look into an organization, we'll see a leader who clearly has some positional power, but they might not have the kind of influence that somebody else with status power might have in that system. And status in an organization might even just be something like tenure, right? How long has someone been in an organization, whether they have the role or not, they might have outsized influence or outsized ability to affect change based on that. Well, that's uh, very informative. I like the way that kind of, I can kind of see the building blocks of how things can 
kind of build up all the way up into the systemic power and how the systems that exist can influence, I guess, a lot of the other different roles within the power dynamics that you've kind of mentioned. So let's talk a little bit about, you know, one of those other posts that you recently posted that was really insightful to me was about that you find that the most powerful people to you are those that are recovering from addiction. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, sure. So the first half of my career or so, which is hard to say, it, it means I'm getting a little bit gray and it means I spent too too long in addictions treatment. But first half of my career was in addictions treatment, as first as a youth worker and then into positions of leadership in that system. And working with people in recovery or trying to recover from something like addiction or and concurrent mental health challenges, you know, usually it's not just addiction. It's pretty rare to have just addiction without depression or anxiety or trauma or like all the things that drive that. Recovering from that, the lessons that you learn, the skills that you gain, the challenges that you have to face both within yourself, who you are as a person and who you are in relationship to other people and the world to fundamentally go from someone who gets their joy and their pain relief through using substances to somebody who's able to let those go and be a whole person in the world or be good, like well enough to function. Uh, that's a huge like personal transformation journey. Mm -hmm. And I was just resonating on the people or reflecting on the people that I know who have gone through that journey, who've gone on to become like incredible speakers and writers and just gifted at taking that personal power that they've accumulated and sharing it with the world to affect change. And, you know, just resilient. We would say resilient or grit would be the thing that are kind of the most resilient people. I don't like we could go down that rabbit hole of why that can be problematic, that kind of grit and bootstraps narrative, because it doesn't tell the whole story by any stretch. But that's kind of what I was reflecting on. I think that post is that the effort and the skills and abilities you you have to gather on that journey are, are incredibly helpful if you can get through it. And unfortunately, too many people uh, don't get through it. One of the things that really stood out for me was this this idea that when one is going through a process of recovering from addiction, that the motivation to really be more aware and have that underlying conversation with yourself about that personal development, those underlying issues that may be the challenges that you are perhaps are unaddressed as a means of kind of becoming that individual. I thought that was very insightful and definitely something that I feel I resonate with the idea that overcoming addiction certainly makes people very, very powerful in the context of what, how you define power. One of the things that you had recently mentioned in one of your posts was that we shouldn't be building trauma-informed workplaces and teach trauma-informed leadership. Yeah, I think it goes back to the recognition. So in addiction to mental health, it was kind of mid-2000s when I first started that journey. And there was a trauma-informed movement started shortly thereafter. There's a big study called the ACEs study, Adverse Childhood Experience Study, I think out of Kaiser Permanente out in California. Lots of papers have been written about that. That was the late 90s, I think 2000 ish and it started to make its way into the helping professions, into psychology, into addiction treatment, into these places where we started to see these issues like addiction as symptoms of underlying childhood trauma, unresolved childhood trauma, and lots of other things, you know, mortality and morbidity rates with childhood trauma go up pretty dramatically the more childhood trauma you, you, you experience. And so childhood trauma as a driving mechanism for things like addiction, things like heart disease later in life, all kinds of all kinds of things. And I watched as this system, which if there's any system in the world that should be able to integrate a trauma-informed approach, it should be helping professionals. It should be social workers and psychologists and teachers and like the people who get up every day to make a positive impact on the people that they serve. And that system struggles, if I'm totally blunt and honest, to integrate in an effective way trauma-informed practice. Right? Because there, again, when we think about the systemic power that they're baked within, you know, there's still hierarchies, right? The healthcare systems are these very, these hierarchies with experts and those experts have opinions about things. And 
to be so truly client-centered, trauma-informed practice is really, really hard, right? You have to re-examine a whole bunch of the structures and systems that we've built around something like healthcare or education to actually do it well. And later in my journey, so I moved out of that addiction mental health space into helping the education system actually, not necessarily trauma-informed, but just more client-centered, student-centered practice. Like, what does that actually look like? And it was equally challenging to really get the buy-in because we're still dealing with the same kind of power structures. And so I guess I'm skeptical that if, it, if we can't get it right in those systems, that we're somehow going to transplant it into the corporate world, into our business culture, and do trauma-informed in any kind of reasonable way. I really worry that it's going to be a, another catchphrase and a buzzword like so many other things that have come before it that well, we're doing trauma-informed now, but it is no different than the oppressive systems that we've built in the past. And so I think that post was about, let's not maybe go down the trauma-informed path, let's go down the power awareness. Because until we're not actively causing harm in our systems, like trauma-informed isn't the pathway to get us there. We need to stop doing some things before we can start doing um, some other things. And so not both legit and important, but I would go the power-aware power conscious pathway before the trauma informed. Makes sense. And certainly, you know, from what I understood of that was that primarily when it comes to really trying to look at the workplace environment and see it from the perspective of of trying to, in essence, empower the people that are there, that we should start to focus on what type of culture is being nurtured by that system that's in play, focus on correcting that, addressing those issues that are potentially even causing some level of trauma before we start to really address the symptoms that are a reflection of what, what really exists within that environment. That's kind of what I gathered. And I think it's, it's very insightful. Yeah. And ultimately, that's, the, that's probably the work that we do is going after root causes over symptoms. So many workplaces and leaders play whack-a-mole with the issues. And burnout's a great example of that. People are burnt out. Let's like throw some money or some time or some energy at that, not realizing that the underlying power structure is going to continue to burn people out or the underlying assumptions about how much you need to work to be a productive member of the team or like all the things, the bits of the system that contribute to that. We generally don't like to look at that as leaders. We like to think we're kind of doing something meaningful by, you know, giving everybody the day off or here's a bonus or here's a thing. Like we do a lot of trying to manage symptoms in the workplace, not dissimilar to addictions treatment, right? And that, that was the realization that I had is like, oh, a lot of the things that we do that we think are working here that aren't really working are very similar to the things that we do over here. And it's trying to address symptoms and indicators of problems as opposed to the actual root problems themselves. And do you feel that that idea of really addressing the symptoms by like literally throwing water on the flames is in essence a reflection on them trying to maintain the status quo and not really look at trying to dismantle the systems that exist and the power structures that exist? Or do you feel like they don't know better? It's both probably. And I try and hold the perspective that I probably don't know what the answer is to that question. I have to sure. get in there and talk to the people and right. see like, what is your intention here? Because we talk a lot about the intention and impact gap. And most leaders, I've never actually met a leader in a coaching, training, workshops, all the things who puts their hand up and says, I want to cause harm. I want my people to be burnt out, right? I want these things to happen. They wake up with the intention, like most helping professionals or all of us do, is to make a positive difference in the world. And so some of it for sure is just misalignment between the behaviors that they're doing, the things they're reinforcing through because they're part of that system and they have, they don't have the bandwidth themselves to take a step back and say, is what we're doing here actually helping us or is it causing the problems? And most of us don't have that 50,000 foot kind of view on the systems. Another piece, and I know you've got more questions and so I don't want to go too far down the bunny trail, but a piece of the challenge is that we live in a system 
that tends to prioritize or only make visible personal power. Sometimes it makes rural power visible, right? We'll put a CEO on a pedestal on the front page of Forbes. Right. Like we'll say, hey, look at this person with this power in the role, politicians, like all of that. Like, so there's a, an acknowledgement of rural power. But when it comes to the narrative of what causes change and what people should do if they're burnt out, it's still very much a pick yourself up by your bootstraps, right? Look after yourself. The whole self-care industrial complex is all about just sell people some individualized thing that is going to make them temporarily better, but then feed like back into the system you go. And I was guilty of that you know, in the nonprofit sector of hitting the wall and then recovering and then hitting the wall. And nobody had the time or the bandwidth to take a step back and say, is this working? Right? Is this like we're burning out the people that are meant to support these people who themselves are in kind of dire straits in life? And what's the impact of that? Right. And so when we think about power and we think about leadership, there's actually an, an ethical obligation to be well as a leader. Self-care is actually shifting from, you know, this kind of selfish practice or this thing just that's just for you to if you have power in a system and you're not well, chances are that power is being misused. Accidentally, unintentionally, it doesn't actually matter because the impact is the same. So that's a little bit of a side, you know. No, I mean, that. No, that, no, for sure. That's very informative. And I think that's really helpful. And I guess going into leadership, you know, one of the things that you mentioned was that having more accountability within leadership. Can you talk a little bit about why it's so important for leaders to be held accountable and what, what that means to you? Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a huge conversation, I think. And it goes back to that intention and impact. Mm-hmm. And again, back to that place that most leaders want to have a positive impact on the people that they're there to support. But what they're accountable for and to is not people's wellness, generally speaking. It's the business performance, right? So right down to how do we measure impact? What impact are we trying to affect? If the system is saying the thing that matters is the bottom line or your profit margins or whatever that narrow or narrow indicator is of success then you can have the best intentions of the world to treat your people well, to pay them well, to give them the, the time they need to be whole people outside of work. And there's going to be this constant pressure from the system and even baked into your role, you know, your own KPIs as the leader, if they're business targets and not human targets around how well are people doing, what's the actual employee experience like? We always do, we're in default to the, you know, immediate number, and then it'll be a, an extra bonus if people are well. Right? And so we, we tend to take what's called a human-centered systems conscious approach to our work, which means that we, we want to take the people that we're there to serve, whether they're customers, clients, employees, whoever it is, and let's put them in the center and let's figure out what impact do we want to have on these people. Right? And if we center that and then we start to then, Kate, what does the system need to do to adjust to that? Sometimes it means just balancing how we score success in the workplace and how we measure progress. Right? And most leaders are flying blind when it comes to the actual ex- lived experience of their employees. Right. They'll be up to date on the numbers, how many things that we sell and what's the profit on that. But the last time that they actually checked in with their staff was two years ago with an employee engagement survey that wasn't very effective. And so accountability for me is accountability for the lived experience of the people. Right? And the way to hold people accountable to that is to bake that into job performance is you know, it's one way. Right. And the another way is to, you know, encourage collective like collective impact and to measure progress on a much more frequent basis to see if we're on track or off track, right? To give leaders the chance to course correct as opposed to just burning out half their workforce and getting to a place of, you know, nobody's doing well. And so that answered your question entirely. Accountability is a tricky one. Accountability and responsibility, you know, it comes back to can't hold people accountable to expectations that haven't been clearly set and articulated. And for the most part, in most organizations, we haven't clearly said leaders, you're accountable for the lived experience of your people. Right? So that would be a great first step, I think, for somebody who wanted to reorient a little bit of that accountability conversation is just to include that in the discussion. 
And the other thing that you mentioned in one of your posts was that there seems to be a diminishing level of accountability as the person rises up that corporate ladder. Why do you think that's a problem or what what can we address that problem as? I mean, clearly you would assume that as somebody comes into a position of leadership and continues to rise up, they should be held more accountable rather than less accountable. Why do you think that that dynamic currently exists? Yeah, so there's a, there's a couple of things going on. We call it the dynamic of disconnection. So when we think about a power dynamic, and so we've talked about the five types of power, but when we get people into a system, into a dynamic, we get this notion of someone in an up power role and the other person in a down power role. And that doesn't mean all power and no power. That just means I have more ability or power to affect change on you than you do necessarily on me, right? As that gap gets wider and wider and wider, what ends up happening is the person with up power gets further and further away from the lived experience of these people. And so it's harder for them to even be self-accountable because they don't actually know what the impact is on that person because they're now just a number on a spreadsheet or somebody who works in the field office you know, across the country. Uh, so I don't know them personally. And that depersonalization that occurs, the further away we get, the easier it is to misuse and abuse your power and the harder it is for people down here to hold that person accountable. So we rely on self-accountability. And again, that's the way we've structured power is we rely on the benevolent leader to hold themselves accountable to a certain standard but they might not even know what the impact is of the decisions they're making here on the people down here, right? And so this dynamic of end when you're down here, it's actually pretty challenging and pretty dangerous to give pointed, sharp, punchy feedback further up the chain, right? And we actually, I think we've been seeing some of this. On, I'm not actually on Twitter. I had to get off of that platform within the last year or so. It's just too much for me, right? But we're, we're seeing this play itself out at Twitter, right? Where people are criticizing the CEO, Elon, these days, and they're getting fired, right? So that's dangerous when you're down here. And so most of us, unless there's something really meaningful at stake, are going to stay quiet. And if we stay quiet, then there's no way for the people up here to know the true nature of their impact. And we get this by kind of no fault of either parties, really, because it's just a natural kind of a fallout, I guess, of the structure of, of being that power, that kind of centralized and located. I don't know if that's helpful. Yeah. It's a no, for sure it is. And it actually raises a whole different other beast that involves the idea that, that the systems that exist in many ways silence or create that disconnect and somewhat retain that power dynamic where those that are raising concerns at a level that is far below. First of all, having the, the courage to speak up, especially when you're in a position where you know that there's that, that gap to try to reach out and be like, listen, I need to be heard. This is what I'm experiencing. This is my situation. This is the scenario that you're catering to and being seen and heard for that versus, you know, the actions by leaders that are like, you're fired, <laughs> you're fired, you're out. We don't want anybody that's going to object or oppose or not fall into line. Is that that type of leadership or that type of systemic power that exists that is somewhat nurturing that specific role that you're mentioning, role power, status power, is that something that needs to be tackled by way of addressing the systems or is it addressing that person, that specific role? What do you think is the way to really kind of bridge that gap in some way where people can feel heard and seen to speak up versus being completely like dissuaded from actually raising their voice at all? And 20 minutes in and we've hit the crux of the how do we address these these issues and I, I don't have the <laughs> unfortunately I don't have the silver bullet I've got lots of thoughts and we're, we're experimenting well, share your with thoughts. Lots of I want to hear so, your thoughts yeah yeah there's no right, solution well, sure. I don't, yeah so certainly if you can work on systemic and structural rules essentially or ways of working or like the actual structures like we should be working there wherever possible we should be looking at our decision making processes our reward like who we reward and why and how we should be looking at how we prioritize we should be looking at how we communicate like we should be figuring out how do we do this in a way that distributes power 
and flattens hierarchy wherever possible, but doesn't necessarily eliminate hierarchy. And so I think that there's, we have a tendency to be pretty binary. And this, this conversation isn't a binary. It's not like all hierarchy or no hierarchy. It's not, let's sit around in a circle and make decisions jointly by consensus, because that, you know, might be great relationally, but doesn't lead us like, we're not going to get anything done in that or very quickly. Right. So there's this trade-off. And I think that's the fundamental tension is this, you know, we talk a lot about that all of us existing on a, a task versus relationship spectrum. Uh, sometimes we're in task focused mode. Sometimes we want to build connection and more deeply understand the other person. And in fact, probably you're, you're experiencing that in this podcast right now. You've got questions you want to get through and you've got questions you want to ask that might take us on a different path because you want to know no, more about the journey. And I'm feeling the same thing. I'm like, I'm answering questions, but I kind of want to ask questions to you. And so By you, all means, you and I are, conversation. Ask me. Yeah, I'm, I'm down for sure. I'm enjoying it. You and I are balancing task versus relationship and hierarchical structures are pretty efficient to getting tasks done. It's why militaries and emergency services and those types of places, you know, they can very quickly execute a decision. Is it the best decision? Does it include all stakeholders and all voices? Probably not, but we're going to have a bias towards action. Right? If we think about some of the other models out there, like sociocracy or holacracy or theocracies, right? The various, there's a variety of frameworks that tend to be more circular, right? How do we make decisions collectively by democracy or consensus or some sort of kind of decision-making mechanism that recognizes that any one individual probably doesn't have the answer to the question and we flatten that hierarchy. But if we completely eliminate it, like I said, we're probably not going to get things done. And so it's, it's that tension there between those two types of organizing ourselves and what that means for things like decision-making and inclusion and, and, and those different things. And so, you know, the, each organization and sometimes even teams within organizations have to start to look at that and start to take that on and say, how do we actually want to be? And inevitably, it kind of drives us to a conversation about values. What do we care about? When we talk about accountability in systems, I can think of many times where I was holding leaders accountable to stated values as opposed to trying to fix their behavior. Because, you know, if we say we value collaboration, how is this process collaborative? And help me understand that. And usually they would be like, hmm, you're right. It's not as collaborative as it needs to be, or we are missing some voices. And it might like be a check in that system that might default to just hierarchical decision-making, right? And so I think stated values that are stated clearly enough, and there's a shared understanding and a mutual co-creation on the team of what those values are and what they look like in practice, then it's not, I'm not holding you accountable to your behavior or like I'm not pushing back or punching away. It's, we said these things are important and this is how we were going to be with these things. And help me understand how that is a reflection of that, right? This behavior is, is that this, right? And so that's probably regardless of structure is we tend to end up at a place of, well, how is this behavior reflective of your values? And unfortunately, most organizations and teams, their values have been an exercise they did years and years and years ago, and they're just a plaque, or they're just like words on the wall or words on the website, and they haven't been translated into actual ways of being with each other. And so that might be a place for people to start if they're thinking about you know, their workplace and their leaders and is like, what are our values? State them as clearly as possible, articulate them in a way that says, this is how we're going to be with these. And then we have something, a handrail, I guess, for accountability or feedback that hopefully has something, it's meaningful enough to the people who are in the leadership role. And, and just by you talking about values, my, my thought process has gone towards this idea where companies do not do enough about really their market value. But do they really institutionalize those values within the culture of the environment? Is that reflective? And, that, and like what you said, I mean, I think it sounds like to many extents, the focus is really on the task at hand, right? And it's about that bottom line. It's about, you know, continuing to the production, the productivity, rather than that, is this 
where we're going collectively as a company, as a business, as a collection of people? Are we going in the direction that serves the values that we all share as a part of this institution? And, and enjoy this conversation. I think we could talk forever and uh, definitely appreciate you taking out the time to speak with me and answer some of these questions and, and kind of provide more context into some of your posts on LinkedIn and, and also the work that you're doing, which I think is phenomenal. So uh, thank you so much for uh, taking out the time to speak with me today. Oh, thanks so much for having me. Yeah, it was a real pleasure. Chat soon. Thanks for joining us today on the Workplace Justice Podcast. Love this episode? Leave us a review and tell us what you think about our show. If you haven't subscribed yet, head over to iTunes or your favorite podcast listening app to subscribe to our show so you'll never miss a new episode. Need help? Talk to an employment lawyer today. Visit our website at nisarlaw.com or call 212-600-9534 for your free case evaluation. See you in the next episode.